Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, this is Holly Knight and you're listening to another Holly, Holly C and David on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Holly Cantos. <laughs> hey, Dave. Dave Sloan, but I don't really have to refer to you that way, do I? Well, it's like we're back in grade school. You will be Holly C. We are talking to Holly K. today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Who is Holly K.? Holly K. is Holly Knight. I looked on her LinkedIn profile. Holly Knight is a songwriter, music producer, author, and provocateur. Ooh, You just want to say that word. I do. I do like that. And we just finished up her book. And what is that book, Holly Cantos? Uh, Her book is called I Am the Warrior, My Crazy Life Writing the Hits and Rocking the MTV 80s. I feel like she's being modest. She did more than rock the 80s. These songs she wrote, and you want to touch on a few of your favorites, Holly Cantos? Oh my gosh. Holly Cantos, tell us what Holly Knight has written for us. She is the songwriter from our generation. She wrote Love is a Battlefield. She wrote Better Be Good to Me. Obsession for Animotion. Oh my gosh, she's written nine songs for Tina Turner, including The Best. She wrote the title of the book, The Warrior, which you know from Patti Smythe and Scandal. Pleasure (laughs) and Pain, The Divinals. Yes, give me more. Uh, Uh, Never for Heart. Yes, she's written for Kiss. She's written for Rod Stewart. She's written for Cheap Trick, Shaka Khan, Lou Graham, Aerosmith. Just an immense catalog uh, that you can pull up on Spotify. Normally, we would create a Spotify playlist, but it's already there. You could just type in Holly Knight and you could see her vast catalog of songs. Anyway, we got her into the virtual studios, didn't we, Holly Cantos? We we did. Am I going to laugh every time you call me Holly Cantos? I liked Holly's suggestion of thing one and thing two, but I will go with Holly Cantos for now. Nice. Because I'm feeling invincible today. Holly, can we get a glimpse of what Holly Knight looks like? If you check out our YouTube channel and What Difference Does It Make podcast and our other social media at WDDIM podcast, you will find outtakes from our chat with Holly Knight. Should we just get into it? This is not a do or die situation. Let's get into it right now. This is Holly Knight, songwriter and provocateur on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Hi, Holly. We got Holly C and Holly Holly K. Holly 1 and Holly 2. Yeah. (laughs) Like thing 1 and thing 2. There you go. You're a New Yorker. You talk about how much you love New York and you feel like a New Yorker, but you ended up here. Was it because of the music industry that you ended up here permanently? Pretty much. And the people that I wanted to work with initially lived here. So they suggested that if I came out here, that they would definitely work a lot with me. The main person being Mike Chapman, who was a well-known producer and amazing songwriter and he took me under his wings. That's why I moved out here. And I, I was ready. I mean, I've been to New York and I'll always love New York. It's in my DNA, but uh, just the idea of being in a completely different city and sunshine year round. And oh, and I also fell in love and fell in love with someone who I ended up marrying. So <laughs> all those things considered. <laughs> we kind of discovered you. We are uh, look at the, the songs that K-Rock played in Los Angeles. And we've been looking at it from 1980. We're going from 1980 to 1989. And then all of a sudden we look at, um, in 1981, we came across this song that reached number 73 on the K-Rock charts. It was by this band called Spider. And the song, Better Be Good To Me. Oh, yes, I'm touched by the show of emotion. Should I be fractured by your lack of emotion? Yeah, you 
like, wait a second. I think I know this. And then, you know, suddenly we. Really? We looked, it actually charted? I didn't know that. It did. Yes. Number 73. What was the date on that? I'll have that, to look that up. It was, for, it was the, the year end list. So from 1981. Oh. Yeah. So you guys, you guys made it up to, I, I'll have to, I'll send you the list. Um, I didn't even know it came out as a single. It was going to, but then it got derailed by other things that had nothing to do with us. This was the K-Rock list when it didn't necessarily have to have been released as a single. So then we started looking up Holly Knight and like, wow, every song that we heard on K-Rock was created by Holly Knight. Also in 1986, the number 106 song was by a band called Device, Hanging on a Heart Attack. And again, we looked at like, wait a second, hold on. This is Holly Knight. And then this was the year we looked at 1986. And then we discovered this recently. You were looking at this and discovered it. Yeah. It wasn't weeks. It was recently. Yeah. This is what we're doing right now for, because of the right. podcast. These were two bands that we weren't familiar with, but then we were like, oh, Holly Knight. And then we saw you had a book out. I'm like, okay, now we got to get this. Now we got to read this book and now we got to get her on the podcast. So basically what I'm saying is thank you so much for joining us today. This is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> you like the book? I want to know your feedback. I want to know what you thought. First of all, I didn't want it to end. And I loved every minute of the of this book. And I was trying to explain to Dave before, and then I went to save it for the podcast, all the reasons that I loved it. Aside from loving your, your music, your songwriting, your everything, I felt the book was so relatable, even though your experience is in, is in the music business and, you know, the people that you come across and that you work with are famous. I found it relatable the way you entered relationships and the insecurities that you felt all of it. I felt like it was relatable and I empathized with you, everything about it. I couldn't get enough. I couldn't get enough of your, your experiences. And with each one, I just felt like, yeah, I have felt this. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people said that they feel like I took them and put them in the room with me, mm -hmm. uh, which was what I was hoping to do. And for people that weren't even born at that time, I think it's a great documentation of that time period, which was so unique to anything that we have now and, and anything before that, you know, it was this decade. I mean, the book is really focused on the MTV era. And I, I did actually write a lot more after that about my life. And my editor said, you know what, let's just focus on that one decade because people want to know about that. And, you know, you always have to have something that's sort of like, a hook on the book. So I actually had written about a hundred pages more than we ended up keeping. And I agreed with him because I didn't realize it when I sat down to write it, but it, it but it became like my love letter to the eighties and my times during that decade, you know? So will there be a sequel? Well, I am working on a second book, which is more like a grimoire of uh, songwriting, but it's going to be very attractive sort of coffee table with big pictures and drawings and old lyric sheets or memorabilia of mine. Some of it's out to the Grammy Museum right now, but when I get it back, I'll put that in the book. And just things about the music business and things that people can really sort of use to improve songwriting and the joy of it. You know, but it's funny because a couple of people have said that, you know, there's even prequel. I mean, there's talk about it being made into a limited miniseries. You know, there are things in my real life that I did not put in this book that were even before the 80s, things like that. Like I sold for about a year, I sold pianos off a semi truck in Montana. And my boyfriend and I drove through Montana meeting all these cowboys and stuff. And, and I would demonstrate the pianos and he would do the sales pitch, just silly stuff like that. So probably not, though. I don't know if there'll be a, an actual sequel. The rest of it's, you know, just more the same of me writing all those. I got older and things calmed down and I had children and I got married again and all that stuff. I kind of throw it in there as a capsulated version and the acknowledged, uh, not the acknowledgement, the afterward. But also you'd captured snippets of childhood and coming up, uh, oh, yes. you know, those, the, the boyfriend. Yeah. You met this boy, Danny, the drummer, Danny Walker. Yeah. Yes. And then we left. And then it kind of like glazed over like, okay, and we did that. We bounce, 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 bounce. And then I came back like, oh, I would imagine there are a lot of stories there that could have been told that yeah. might have been because, you know, 
we got to get to the hits. Don't bore us, get to the chorus, right? Pretty much, yeah. Some, <laughs> someone reviewed, reviewed the book and said, it was just an Amazon reader. I love what he said. Holly Knight's new book is all killer and no filler. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> It's always interesting when you read a memoir, it's when you're living it in the time, it sounds like you're, it feels like you're a pinball, you know, just bouncing from place to place, 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 boom, 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 boom. But when you look back on it, it's almost a through line. Like I, I met these people and because I met this person, I was able to write this song. This opportunity opened up because I met this person and suddenly, you know, you're, you're rising all the way to the top, you know, that's. Yeah. As I got to the top, there were a couple of things that I talk about that were backward steps too, you know. Writing for somebody specific when you know that somebody wants a song and they've asked you to either write for them or write with them versus the songs that you have, because you talk about having a lot of songs in your cache that are have not been recorded by anybody yet. How much of that, like in that decade, let's just use the 80s, did you write intentionally for others versus writing songs that you have kept? I think it was more writing, thinking of artists I wanted to no, no, actually, let me think about that. That's a good question. I think it was probably equally like the same. It was half and half. You know, like when I was in my first band, I wrote for that band. And then some of those songs got cut after they were on our record, like Better Be Good To Me. So I didn't really do anything. And then Tina Turner heard this song and decided to cut it. I think as time went on, I wrote more with the artist or with them in mind. It's always risky when, I mean, it's lovely to sit down and write great songs, but if you don't know who you're writing them for or what they're for, a lot of times they can end up like not getting cut uh, just for that exact reason. You know, it's not an instant sort of cover thing. And that's why I have, what was already <laughs> Cash. Okay. Hopefully yeah. I'm, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right, or just a, a stash, a cash or a stash. A secret stash box of, of Holly Knight songs. Yeah. yeah, I mean, some of the best stuff I've ever written, which is recently, has not been cut. Not yet. Will be. Yeah. It's amazing when you do write specifically for an artist. I have Apple Music, so there's a Holly Knight playlist. I was listening to that. Yeah. And then you listen to, to Ragdoll, like, no one else could have sung this song. This is, this is so Steven Tyler. It's meant for him. started with him. I mean, yeah. I was to sort of fix it because it was a good song, but it wasn't what the label thought was a hit that they could really market. So that's probably why it's quintessentially Steven Tyler, because it is Steven Tyler <laughs> who started out the tune. And I was, you know, that was a unique situation where I was brought to fix something, which I don't really like to do. I, I like to write from scratch, but I didn't care. I was like willing and ready to do anything that involved Aerosmith because I was a big fan, even though they weren't really that popular at, at the time that we were working because they just messed things up. Whoops. <laughs> My new single. Um, uh, yeah, I know. But uh, yeah, it's very much him. You know, he, he tends to write a certain style of lyrics that it's hard to decipher what he's talking about sometimes, mm -hmm. but you don't care because it's Steven Tyler and he's got such a great rhythm. You know, there were a lot of lyrics like that in this song, so there was not really any one part where it just slowed down enough, I guess, have a, more of a chorus, you know. But you did come in and fix it. I'm just trying to get inside the song. What was it? That was in there where people said this isn't a hit. And then you you recognize an element that like, oh, this is what we need to make this a, a hit song. Well, it started with a uh, title change. So it used to be ragtime, which I don't know if anybody would relate to that as much as I always thought of him like as a rag doll with all those scarves that he ties on his phone stand and stuff. And then just sort of making the word, the lyrics, just re rewriting some of the lyrics and stuff, really. So, you know, as I said, I, that wasn't like a typical situation where I very much am in from the beginning and knee deep in it. But sometimes the, the tightening of a screw can make all the difference between pleasure and pain, you know? <laughs> Speaking of, you talked about the, the writing with Chrissy Amphlett or writing for, yeah, her. for her. I didn't know how to feel about that. You told the story about meeting with her and then you asked her a question, which is relatable as a female. Mm -hmm. And I guess she was offended, but you didn't know at the time. And she walked out. Yeah. 
people describe her as a really nice person. She was. She was lovely. She was different, but most people, most artists and creative people are. And that's what attracts us to each other. And no, she was really nice. She was one of my favorite singers. Like with the Wilson sisters, with Kathy Valentine, like these are friends that you bonded with instantly, it seems like. Absolutely. And they're still my friends. Is it because of a shared situation or is it just you just felt this kinship with them? I think both. I mean, there's the side of being a woman and then you're in a male dominated industry and it's a small pool. So it gets even smaller as you get with people that are successful doing it. So we had that going, but we also as women, that's sort of like the hunters and gatherers mentality. Women can relate uh, easier to other women just in their dialogue and their detail and all that with men. Kind of have to dumb it down. No, I'm just kidding. No, just, I, I get it. Not, not dumb it down, but you, simple. One right. one thought at a time. You know, I found that when I text my girlfriends or my female friends, you can have like long texts. You can answer a bunch, but they'll answer every question. And with a male, you stick to one question or one statement, and you wait for them to respond before you put any more information in there because that's just the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's just the way it is, baby. One of my favorite stories in the book is The Night of the 30 Toes with Anne and Nancy Wilson of Heart. That's a popular one. Yeah. A lot of people love that. I love hearing about the bond that was created with them. What a visual, though, you know? Like you're lying down, and then all of a sudden you realize you look down at your feet, and there are 30 toes, all painted exactly the same. The toenail is like red, just happened to be that way. It wasn't planned. I wish I had taken a picture of that, but that probably would have ruined the moment. You know, sometimes the most amazing things happen. You think, oh, I wish I could take a picture, but then you'd have to go get your camera or something. Of course, that was a different time. Yeah. The world we're is not now. They made it easy. Everybody yeah. pretty much has theirs attached bungee cord to like an IV into their hand. Yeah. Did cameras seem like an invasion? I mean, besides being at parties and stuff, but if you're like in a, a situation and then someone's yeah, snapping. It was, just, it was just so you had to go and get it and it wasn't readily available. So I don't have a ton of pictures back then the way people do now. I mean, everything's documented from what they eat. It's like ridiculous. It's, it's too much. And I, I also love the fact that that back then you could take a picture with your family or your friends and it didn't matter if you thought you looked bad or whatever because it was your family and your friends and it was something that you put in your album but now if they take a picture you almost for sure they're going to go post it and i just think that sometimes people need to relax with that a little bit and just be in the moment you know, uh, yeah. I've seen many, many musicians on tour that get mad at the audience because they're all holding up their phones. I mean, yes, they pay for the ticket and yes, they're, they're entitled to do that. But sometimes, you know, the artist gets frustrated because when you're taking a picture, you're sort of looking at the camera to make sure it's a good angle and blah, blah, blah. Whereas when the phone's in your pocket, you're actually watching the band and, you know, you miss things when you take them. And I suppose later you could go and watch it and share it with the world, but it's not the same as being in the moment. Read Eckhart Tolle. <laughs> The power of now. I don't even post a picture I take of a friend unless I get their permission. We have sort of an understanding that way. So speaking of that, you hung out with Kiss a lot. Were there (laughs) rules about cameras and, you know, you're at dinner with Ace or Paul or someone? Even when before they took their makeup off, I have polaroids of them without their makeup just being normal i have one of ace sitting on his pinball machine in his basement of his home in connecticut this was back in the early 80s he's in shorts he has no shoes or socks on you know he's just natural they did have definitely stipulations about if anybody worked on their record though so if someone worked on their record they did not get credit for that they got paid eventually it all came out years later but at the time yeah i ended up playing on one of their records. They played on the whole record. I played the keyboards and it's all in my book, how that came to be and everything. And I was told uh, I was not going to get credit. So I saved the checks they gave me for like 40 years. It's I took a picture of it. It's That's in the book too, which is pretty funny that I actually saved. I didn't save the checks. I cashed them, but I saved a picture. Like in, back then it was a Xerox. You Xerox something, you know? Oh yeah. And that also <laughs> takes me back to Spider because the band wanted everyone to get credit for the song. A lot of times, like with R.E.M. and U2, that works for the band, that keeps them together, but that's not what you saw for this situation. Well, it it, it was twofold. 
It's not that everybody wanted credit for writing the songs. It's that everybody wanted to share financially equally. Bill Acoin, our manager, suggested that we make a partnership and that no matter who wrote it, because we were a band, everybody should get a portion of the songwriting. As far as credits, no, that was never shared equally, although there are bands that do that. I've worked with bands and they'll just say, I don't put my individual name, just put like the Donnas or something, you know. But the truth of the matter is it doesn't mean that the whole group is writing that song, very much the opposite. And I wasn't crazy about even splitting the royalties. I just somehow, I didn't know I was going to be a songwriter then, so it wasn't just me. I figured for everybody, it's like sort of the same thing as like, you know, you send your kids to karate camp or karate school or soccer or whatever, and every kid on the team wins a prize and a trophy on every team. And it's sort of like, wait a minute. You know, there's something to be said for competitiveness, healthy competitiveness. This is a capitalistic country and it makes you want to work harder when you have to compete. Look at the Olympics, you know. So I wasn't really excited about that. And it didn't solve the fighting or the problems because right. everybody was doing an ex member of the band had more names on the record or, or on singles or X's first name came first when the, the other writers wanted their first name for it. Just stupid, petty stuff, you know, and it got old. So by the time we did the second record, I decided that it was time to make a clean break and be more of an individual songwriter as opposed to being in a band. There were a lot of things I loved about being in a band, but, um, you know, bands are like marriages and people get along and then don't get along. And actually all the bands that are together now that I know personally, whether it's Aerosmith or Kiss, they've sort of mellowed out where they sort of come full circle. Like they've had the fist fights, they've dissed each other, they've broken up and done solo records and then sort of they're a little bit older now. They're like, oh, he's my best friend or he's family to me even when we fight. It's like a natural evolution. I'm really good friends with most of the band members in Spider. Oh, is that right? Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because Spider seemed like it seemed like most. Oh, okay. (laughs) It did seem like a a little Fleetwood Mac-ish. There were relationships in there. And then there was there was infighting. There was it was worse than Fleetwood Mac, actually, as far as. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Well, like I explained in the book, but the singer was married to the guitarist and they had a child together. And I was living and dating Anton the drummer. Then eventually I broke up with Anton and. Anton ended up with the singer. She divorced the guitarist and then she married Anton and had a child with him. And then she divorced him. I mean, you know, it was intricate to say the least. The funny thing is, is that Keith and Anton are still best friends. They survived all that. Okay, we are fawning over Holly Knight, but the time has come to take a break. We will be back shortly. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. This is simply the best 
We are with Holly Knight on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Who did you give advance copies to or give like a little notice? Like, I am going to write about this. And, oh, you know, no, I didn't really give any. Nothing. Okay. okay. I didn't do anything that was like legally a scandal, a slanders. Right. I told the truth. And if I said something that might have been considered slanders, like when I was talking about Nikki Chin, well, that was entirely truthful. And my co-writer, Mike Chapman, agreed. I mean, Mike and I wrote Better Be Good to Me and Nikki Chin wasn't even in the country when we wrote it. But his name is on it and he makes a third of the income to this day. And so I just laid it out there, but it was true. It's not slanders if it's true and you can prove it. But I think I was sort of kind. I didn't throw anybody under the bus. And even if I was talking about sort of this situation like the Rod Stewart one. It was said affectionately. I was commenting on something I didn't like in the book that Rod Stewart had remarked about. So it's all truthful, but I'm friends with him. I mean, it's like all water under the bridge. I get along pretty much with everybody. everybody. Well, that's what yeah. I loved about the book. Like you get into the their inner sanctum for for a little bit of time. And just hearing Rod Stewart, like I can totally imagine that this this is Rod Stewart. This is what this is how he operates. And well, to your to frustration, me. probably. Well, I stood up to them. They never intimidated me. If I didn't like something, I didn't give a shit who they were. I was very honest about it. And maybe they didn't like it, but maybe they sort of came to their senses. Or, you know, like I said, we get older. We don't care so much about all the petty details and stuff. It's like, move on. Life is short. But like the Bon Jovi one, I tell the story in there. And then said how at the end, it was all fine. He ended up calling me to play on a share record. That story has more to do with the party I went to at his house and how I got thrown in a swimming pool by one of his employees, which I didn't like. Kind of a stupid, funny story, actually, when I think about it. But, well, no, but the fact time. that he didn't cut, that he didn't... He didn't stick up for me, you know, right. and actually scolded me. As a woman, I mean, you, could, you couldn't even get away with that now. Someone picking you up, grabbing your ass, and throwing you in a pool. Not jo- Bon Jovi, not John, but um, one of his roadies who thought it was funny. It's like, <laughs> it's just not the way... Anybody really should be treated, unless you're all horsing around. I mean, that's different. Obviously, you're horsing around, you're all throwing each other. Well, that's a different, this was a different set of circumstances. As you've mentioned, like you're in their inner sanctum and then you leave, you're, you go to the next thing, but then you meet them 20 years later or so. And it seems like it's yeah. all under water under the bridge or that they've changed, they've evolved or you, you know, everyone is, everyone changes. And, and I think in that way that like, it doesn't matter if you're man or woman, I think that's just everybody. Human nature. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you tell a story in the book about Paul Young passing on the best. Yes. You conveyed well the shock that you have when you mean you're passing on this song. This is a hit. But then you talk about how you continue to feel about him or how you felt about him later on. And then you connected with him again. Do you ever have more in-depth discussion about that? Or is it just, is that also water under the bridge? Or anybody else who has passed on a song that you have felt strongly about? Oh, I never cared before. I mean, I cared, but I, I mean, that's part of what I do. People pass all the time. Yeah. Otherwise, it would be unrealistic if I was shocked every time someone said, uh, no, not for me. I don't love it or whatever. That happens all the time. It was just that this particular song I knew was special. I mean, there wasn't even a conversation about why he, I don't even know if he actually heard it. I'm pretty sure he did because when I saw him in years later, I kind of teased him about it. Like, and he had didn't really have much of a sense of humor about it. I think at that point it was like, don't want to hear about it. I didn't get into an in-depth conversation with him. But I will say that in my book, in the acknowledgments, I thanked him for not cutting the song. That was just my sense of humor. Look, I thanked Morticia in the book too. <laughs> Morticia Adams, because she's yeah. big influence. But that's just me trying to be funny. You mentioned Morticia Adams. There's another person that was in disguise that you were always <laughs> friends with. And because we're in October, let's talk about your relationship with uh, Cassandra Peterson, a.k.a. Elvira. Oh, oh, I love Cassandra. She's still to this day, like one of my closest friends. And 
you know, even though she wasn't a musician and I'm writing about songs and things like that, I did actually work with her. I wrote two Halloween songs and I produced them, which was really nice because I talk about how hard it was to break into production. And here it was a woman that gave me like one of my first chances. You know, she's still I mean, an amazing. Over the years, she's just sort of become such an icon. She has like a million followers or over that now on Instagram. <laughs> oh, yeah. She really does well with the social media. She does a lot of amazing, funny and entertaining posts, and she keeps her audience engaged. And she has a great book out, too, that she put out the year before I did. Yes, we've been trying to get her on. Maybe you can pull some strings for us. <laughs> Was it your idea to get Fred Schneider on uh, um, Bride of Frankenstein? Every time I hear his voice, it just makes uh, me smile. I, just, I know, it's, it's so funny. Um, no, she, uh, Cassandra was friends with him, and so they had already sort of talked about doing it, and uh, so I was the lucky recipient, the <laughs> producer and the songwriter. the wedding march at the beginning of the song on a pipe like gothic really evil sounding organ and it had i had wolves howling in the background and they've sort of become staples around halloween now if you can find the cds and stuff you wanted to be a producer and this was your first effort and then did this no no this was definitely not my first effort it was the first time i actually got hired as a producer whereas I'd been producing for many years and not getting credit or mm. they would use something I produced and then find out it was me. Like in the movie Thelma and Louise, Ridley Scott had heard the demos originally. And when they re-recorded the songs with a really famous producer, the artist re-recorded the songs and Ridley Scott heard him. He didn't like him and he said, take them out. I want the original demos or I'm not going to use the songs. And I didn't find this out till the movie came out. So then I had to contact them. It was too late to give me credit, of course, but they had to write me a check. So things like that were going on a long time. I just don't think that the, the you know, the music business, it, and it's still that way today. It's very patriarchal. And the idea of a woman being in control and handing over a check to them, men aren't comfortable with that, which is ridiculous because I think business-wise, my most professional relationships are with women that are more ethical, more willing to work something out as opposed to, you know, killing each other, more honest and trustworthy and just smarter because they get into the minutia of everything. That's my feminist statement for today. (laughs) But I believe in it. Yeah, right. Sounds good to me. You touched on movies. You've written for a number of films. Do you like that process of here's a script? Like you've got the scenario and now you got to create a song around this. Did you like doing that process? Oh, I love it. I yeah. love it. I, I want to do more. Um, <laughs> you know, it's hard. It's these days, the music supervisors on a project, they, they have so much power to pick and choose what they want to do. They think they're the rock stars, you know, so it's really yeah. hard to get even me. I'm in the songwriting hall of fame, but just to get their attention or it might be a situation where they've signed a bunch of writers and they're going to use the songs in the movie from their only from their writers because of course they're going to make more money as a manager. So, it's a little bit harder and more complicated now to do that than it used to be, but you know, I loved I love doing that. I've done that with TV shows too. Mm-hmm. Are you surprised when your songs appear on shows, they just license the song and they insert it like, you know, like South Park? Yeah, and they so- don't tell me. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. That on shows and movies. Now it's better because I complain. But see, the thing is, once you record a song, the first time you get to decide yes or no, if you want to give it to an artist, once it comes out, anybody can cut the song as long as they license it and you get paid. But they don't need your permission unless they're going to change it or they're going to sample it and make it a, a, a new sort of derivative. But 
lot of times they don't tell you and then the publisher wouldn't bother telling me because there'd be so many of them. It's like they just oh. didn't bother. So someone would call me up like that happened with Glow. And I had the theme song to that show with the warrior. Mm-hmm. And a few people wrote me like, that's awesome. Congratulations on Glow. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And then I would find out, oh, yeah, we forgot to tell you it got licensed. good about it because I had a lot of licensing last year and what I mean by licensing is they have to pay me to use a song it's different than just saying I want to cut a song because then you go to someone like Harry Fox which is like just a middle aggregate sort of person and they make sure you get paid they get the song licensed to the artist but when it comes to movies then you if whoever has the publishing on that is the one that they deal with i have people that do that for me and they negotiate on my behalf and it's really nice i had a song in the super bowl last year which was great it's a pringles commercial all right so tina turner she wrote a, a nice a beautiful introduction in the book for you what is it about tina where she just uh, envelops a song or what what is it where the matchup with your songwriting and what she can do to a song that made it so special well she likes to sing positive songs like she's done the blues and she's sung them with ike when she left that she also became a buddhist monk and so it's 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 a really big deal to her the lyrics more so than even other artists and i can't say why my songs resonated so much with her but she cut nine of them and the fact that she wrote the four to my book was such an honor and means even more now as if it could when she passed away. I have that. That's my gift from her because she, like all the artists that I've written for or worked with, they don't really voice their thanks that much. They just kind of take it and make it their own. And this was different when she wrote the Ford because it really acknowledged our partnership, at least in the songs that we wrote together and stuff. But I was her rock chick, you know, she always wanted to do rock music, like while you had so many artists at that time wanted to do R&B and soul, obviously they, you know, they were Afro-American and they got kind of associated with that genre of music, whereas she wanted to be a rocker. And it's always like when that happens, people are so surprised, but there have been some great, you know, like Hootie and the Blowfish and Living Color and Prince. Well, Prince was sort of a combination of everything. She was into like Bowie and and the Rolling Stones and, and things like that. So, and I was too. So I think nobody else was really writing rock stuff for her, or maybe they were trying, but like one of the living, the song she did in the in the Mad Max sequel, the third one, it's the only video you'll ever see that I can think of where she's playing electric guitar in the video. She wasn't actually really playing it if you look at her fingers, but the fact that she just embraced that whole sort of rock vibe, and it's probably the rockiest song she's ever done too. Thank you. 
Well, you did. <laughs> you wrote for Shaka Khan. You know, baby, baby me, and I'll baby you. I love that. So there, there's almost like this tie into Prince, and I was hoping. You know, I was like, there must be a Prince story. Holly must have something. I wish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wish. I was such a fan of his from the very beginning. I have a vinyl version of his very first record. Even then, I used to, I remember telling Bill Coyne to come down to the bottom line and check out this new artist that I had seen. The bottom line was a small club in the West Village. And I'd played there many times with, with Spider, so I knew the, the owners and I would go there and see bands. And I saw Prince and it was like, oh my God. So I dragged Bill Coyne down and he was like blown away. And a couple of years later, he was just massive. I love your stories of just trying to get into the clubs was necessary. Yeah. Like you had to sneak in. This yeah. was essential if this is what you wanted to do for a living. Absolutely. Especially tracks, because we developed a relationship where we being Spider, we became the house band. It was great. I lived two blocks away and we played there a lot. And we really, in the beginning, you know, we couldn't even get arrested just trying to get in there. And we got in there luckily, like, by a fluke because another band canceled. And then when we played there, that one time we told all our friends to come down and go crazy, which they did. So then they started booking us on weekends. And so the only reason I bring it up is that was one club that like, once we started becoming the house band stuff, it's like, I would just sort of show up and they would just step aside and hold the rope open. And there'd be like this, these long lines outside looking at me like, why does she get to get in, you know, or sneaking backstage at the garden, like all those things, you know, crash. It's like, is a talent for crashing backstages. It's a lot easier back then. I think I think it's a little, might be yeah, a oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, now it's security guards and cameras and posses. We're talking to uh, James Thomas Gordon. He talked to a number of singers about the singing process. He's asking everyone from from Robert Smith to Paul Stanley to to Brian Adams. Actually, Brian Adams was, I just started reading and they asked him about singing with Tina Turner. It's like, you have to bring your A game. You just, Tina will devour you if you don't you know you don't bring your best well she didn't devour me and i sung with her <laughs> on uh, one of the living i sung all the high parts actually and it was really intimidating because i realized i was standing next to her and i don't even think of myself as a professional singer but we did it and we sounded great together you knew oh, you were a good background yeah. singer but you knew right. you weren't a good front person exactly well a front person has to just first of all have an amazing voice that um, it's almost like they're iconic. They're not the kind of singer that blends in and does harmonies, although they can do that. But a lot of them actually don't sound good when they try and blend and harmonize with other people because they're so unique. And Tina is one of them. Whereas a background singer, you can sing harmonies and sort of blend in and and, and all that. And you can stack the vocals so your vocals are a little (laughs) bit more hidden. Whereas a lead singer has to be front and center, like uh, has to sound great, dry, or reverb, whatever it is, they're just there in the front. And not only that, they have to have charisma if they're going to be on stage doing it. You know, they have to be able to work with the camera. They had to look good. They had to move cool. They had to just be stars, you know. You don't have to be a, a, a front person star to sing backgrounds. You still have to be good, but yes, you, do. Yes, you can you do. kind of be in the background. As, you know, being in the background is very different than being in the front. But you had a look in those video in the videos, the hair for, for MTV. Was it more your voice that you didn't want to be in front or you just were you less comfortable because you moved? You moved great. I was very. Yeah. In fact, I had one of those key tours because I thought, well, <laughs> guitars get to prance around with their guitars and singers get to. Why should I be stuck behind the keyboards? And I thought like with some of the bands that looked kind of lame because they just stood there. But I, I was very active with mine and I, yeah, I was a ham in front of the camera. I was comfortable with all that stuff because I knew what my weaknesses were and what my strengths were. And being a lead singer was not my strength. And then also the bar had been set pretty high with everybody that I'd worked with. I mean, even the lead singer in Spider was a, an amazing singer. And, you know, working with Steven Tyler or Lou Graham or Ann Wilson or Pat Benatar or Tina Turner, it's, like, it's a hard act to follow. So, yeah, that wasn't my strength. My strength has always been songwriting and, and musicianship and production. And you talked about how hard it was to find for, for your band to find the lead singer, you actually kind of threw up your arms like, you know, this will do. Yeah, this this will do. I've heard someone tell me in an interview that the singer, Paul Engelman, had said something like, I interviewed 400 singers when I found him, which is not true at all. I mean, 
it was a lot of singers, but it was, you know, probably more like, I want to say 40 or 50 singers at the most. But the songs were there. Uh, I, I was going well, to. He also said um, that I heard that he said that the reason the band broke up was because I wanted to be in the front and I wasn't getting enough tension. I, you know, I wanted to be the front person. Well, I was such a pile of crap. It's not true at all. Yeah. I mean, I really go into why that band didn't work out. And I've been in bands before. I'm quite comfortable being sort of in the background running around. That's so why I became a songwriter. And that didn't change with device. Yeah. I don't know where he pulled that one out of. In the book, you said it had to be a D in the name. What in particular was it about those letters that you wanted to, to well, show? Well, weird, you know? So, like, I actually, uh, the things that I notice are maybe not the things that everybody notices, but when I look at the alphabet, there were certain shapes of letters that I thought just psychologically had an impact that when I thought of the words for those letters, they were usually interesting words. Like for D, it would be divine or despicable or desolate or destructive. Or, you know, there's so many, the same with V, victory, you know, vivacious, violet, vivid. I don't get that when I th- think of normal. I don't know, you know, here, here's the thing. And, and I've gone through this even more so now with this new group that I've created. I'm, I'm not in it, although I play the, all the keyboards, but I produce and write it. It's so hard to come up with a name now. They've all been used and they've all been done. Back then, in Spider, it was even hard. And we, we had we were called Siren first. And we, it, we found out when we signed a record deal that it was already taken. So we came up with something somewhat similar that started with an S. And we ex- explained why we picked Spider, but... Um, now it's just like a nightmare. It's every time we come up with a good title, even if you combine two or three words, you're like, you can't believe some of these things that are taken. So the band that I put together is called The Terrible Truth. All women. And, but it's all women musicians, like players that are seriously good musicians, as good as it gets out there. So is this what you're you're interested in now in kind of getting some... It's ba- never really been done in that way. I mean, there have been some great groups like the Go-Go's. They had commercial success. I didn't understand after they opened the door open or kicked it down. Mm-hmm. You know, they were on Rolling Stone magazine. They were commercially successful. Um, no one ever sort of picked up the baton. I mean, there was the Bangles, but they were sort of similar to them. No one picked up the baton. And especially then, where were all the great female guitarists and drummers and bass players? I mean, we have, we've always had great female singers, but musicianship is not, it doesn't belong to men somehow. <laughs> we've been sort of shoved into the background again. And I just thought it would be cool to have a group of amazing uh, musicianship, first and foremost, that, that also looked great and were super cool as, as women. Is this a rock band? Of course. Okay. You know, I've never been like a metal rock. I mean, I could do that too, but um, I've, my songs have always sort of been sort of right down the middle rock. And at the time, the reason I had so so much of success in that style in the, in the 80s was because that's what was getting played on the radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were anthems and songs that like you wouldn't, it's it's hard now. It's like there's really not a, a strong presence of rock music. And people, I don't know how interested, you know, I mean, Demi Lovato tried to do that and I don't know how much interest there was for her to do a rock record. But then you got groups like Manskin coming out and they're breaking the mold again and just bringing rock back, which I love. I love that band. And this band, this is kind of like that too, or bands like Muse, you know, where the musicianship is great, but they're commercial. That's the goal of this band. When I look at like Ann Wilson, that to me is like a real rock singer. Hey baby, I'm talking to you. Stop yourself and listen. Some things you can never choose. Even if you try, yeah. You're banging your head again. Somebody won't let you in. One chance, one love. Your chance to let me know. of other female rockers we didn't talk about pat benatar love is a battlefield it will forever be associated with the video 
Right. It is definitely quintessentially 80s and iconic for sure. I didn't like it when I first saw it, but I can now say that, yeah, it's a great 80s video. You also didn't like the initial recording of Pepin Tarsong. That was the one that was produced the way you didn't expect it to. Exactly. You know, I mean, in hindsight, it's been a huge hit and people don't necessarily know the original version, so they don't have anything to compare it to. an eighth note mid-tempo which was sort of a style of mine but it was more anthemic it had less going on on the track so you could really sort of hear the song more it was like it would have been great on game of thrones Mm -hmm. as i say in the book it was like a wine it was like a chalice of red wine and meat and potatoes and um they gave us back a dance track which I always thought that I was blown away by your vocals, but I just, um, I felt like it was a strange rendering of the song. It took me a while to get used to it, but you know, as it got more and more successful and iconic, I just, I've grown to love it as much as I'm going to. We are young. Is that why you wanted to take Neil Gerardo off when you presented another song to Pat? Neil cannot produce this. I want Mike Chapman to do this. Exactly. I had the honor and the privilege of working with a producer that had produced so many number ones. He was also a great songwriter, which is a skill that he and I bring to what we do. And yeah, so I can't believe the balls I had to say that to her. (laughs) And I thought for sure they were going to just tell me no way but they agreed to it might have just been the timing i think i didn't know it at the time but she was four months pregnant so by the time she went to do the video she was probably six months pregnant and you i had no idea she covered it really well the way they shot the video and everything and she sort of had on a overcoat so kind of disguised it a bit personally i think that's the most beautiful she ever looked was in that video of invincible i really like that video i mean i don't like all the videos i see but i think that's a great video and you wrote that for a movie, correct? Yeah. So they interspersed scenes from the movie. The movie was this, uh, it was called The Legend of Billie Jean. And it was sort of like, it had a Me Too message in it long before Me Too ever sort of became uh, more in the forefront of pop culture and society. There were so many movies from the 80s that were like that B-level movie, movie mm-hmm. kind of thing. But again, those were some of the pearls of, of the 80s, you know, whether it was that or, you know, Weird Science I had a song in or all those kind of B-movies. I mentioned this, James Thomas Gordon, this this book again, I, he ha- he's asking these singers 10 certain questions. I'm going to switch the questions from singers to songwriters. Just a couple. Who are your top five favorite songwriters of all time? Most of the artists who answered this question couldn't narrow it down to five either, if it makes you feel any better. Yeah. Well, maybe Leonard Cohen, Mick Jagger, and Keith Richards, Irving Berlin, Ira Gershwin, Hal David, and Burt Bacharach. That makes sense. Were you a Carole King fan? I mean, clearly, I'm, I'm sure you... I was. Yeah. Um, growing up, like, by the time Tapestry came out, I mean, I was more... That's when I became aware of her. And so around then, I was like a teenager and I had no idea that she'd been a songwriter I just thought she was an artist that came out and I loved her stuff very much so her and I loved um, James Taylor you know that kind of folky stuff yeah did Neil Diamond ever approach you I would imagine the 80s he must have been looking for songs 
No, he didn't. I did actually get together with Carol King once, and oh. it was a little awkward, and we didn't end up writing something. It's not not surprising to me because we're very different as writers. I'm a little bit more wild, I would say, and I kind of write outside the box. And she just writes these right down the middle, perfect pop songs, you know. Yeah. For the mm-hmm. era, we're, we're we're different eras. I think that's what. what but sure. I, yeah, I think she's one of the reasons I became a songwriter. You know. All right. Her and Joni Mitchell. Sure. I mean, right. The, Here's one other question. If you could co-write with one songwriter, living or dead, who would it be? Lady Gaga. Really? And why is mm-hmm. that? Because she's adventurous. She'll try anything. I think she's gotten a little safe lately. So I think writing with her would be good because I would encourage her to go back to the days when she was writing some things like Bad Romance. I mean, she's kind of gotten into the piano sort of ballady thing and there's so much more to her. So yeah, I'd like to write with her. I think she's a great songwriter. She's a rock star too, right? Would you consider her a rock star? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But I mean, you know, the, the people that I'd like to write with right now, they're not, and mostly haven't been, they're not the songwriters. They're more like the rock stars that maybe it would be good for them to write with someone that writes all the time, you know? Not that Lady Lady or Gaga or Adele or any of the, uh, you know, hate, uh, Halsey, I'd love to write with her. Mm-hmm. She's, I think she must be into motherhood right now because we haven't heard from her, but I have a feeling yeah. at some point she's going to come out with something. I'd love to write with her. I'd love to write with Trent Reznor. I mean, talk about the other side of the spectrum. Right. But I, I love industrial rock, always have. I love Nine Inch Nails. I love, even the, the, the film scores he does are so good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, social network, amazing. I'm a big fan of film scores, too. I mean, there's some out there that are just, like, so good. You mentioned in your book, the Songwriters Hall of Fame. You talked about being inducted, and it was Patti Smythe who did the induction. And you just your reaction to the whole, to the audience, the, the ovation you got and the respect that you felt. Can you talk a little bit more about that? It was just amazing. I guess it was amazing because, you know, you you think about like, you never know, you know, when you're young, like where your life is going to go and what's going to happen to you. And I just, I even felt that when I was writing the book, like sometimes I was writing about somebody else's life and not mine. Because we all looking back have different chapters in our lives where you almost think, was that me? Was I in that situation, that person? Not good or bad, just it just feels like a different lifetime. And it was just nice to be acknowledged because as a songwriter, you have to get used to the fact that there are often times where nobody knows that you wrote something or whatever. It's, it's even worse now because back then you could read the liner notes or you had to put the writer's name on the record. And I'm not saying from an ego's uh, point of view, like I want credit. It's more like it was a calling card. And that's how my career took off is because people would then realize, oh, she wrote that. And then you realize she wrote this or, with all songwriters, you know, it's important to us so that we can continue doing what we do. And I'm not going to lie. It's really fantastic to be celebrated. That's what's so nice about the Songwriting Hall of Fame is it's the one night of the year where the songwriter gets the acknowledgement and the appreciation that the other 364 days of the year are pretty much non-existent. And I don't think that the artists really go out of their way oftentimes to uh, point out that someone else wrote the song. In fact, they like to perpetuate the myth even more because they feel credibility in not only am I a great singer, but I'm singing my own words, and which I think is a kind of horseshit anyway, because there are some amazing singers out there, whether it was Tina Turner or Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra. Now they're all... They're, they're all dead. And it's like, as we move on, the people in the music business now, they never talk about songwriters. They used, you know, they used to, like I said, with these artists. But I have to go pretty soon. I think we talked for like, wait, we're, 10, 30. You gave us everything we wanted. So thank we you. were supposed to be more respectful of the hour, but <laughs> we couldn't get enough. I enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, Holly. Bye. All right. Did you feel the love touch from Holly Knight? Holly Cantos? I did. I felt the love touch, which I love in the book, her explanation of what a love touch can be. If you want to know, read the book. Where can I get that book? <laughs> is that <laughs> is it available anywhere? That book is available everywhere at your local retailer, maybe your small independent bookstore, or on Amazon, or on Audible, if you'd like to hear Holly narrate the book herself. Yeah, if you loved hearing her on the podcast, just imagine when she's reading her own words, how she sounds. 
<laughs> Simply the best. There you uh, go. Wonderful. You used it again. Eat. You did. This is a do or die situation. I think you passed the test. Thank you so much to Holly Knight for giving us her time. Tina Turner loved this woman. So it's hard not to love someone that Tina loves. So very happy to have her with us. We have this podcast every week, don't we? And we put it out every Friday. So please subscribe. I would recommend subscribing, going to WDDIM podcast. That's what difference does it make podcast? Sign up for our newsletter. We're available on all your favorite podcast platforms. So subscribe and you can find out uh, who appears next week. You never know. I don't know. We'll see. You can also find us on social media at WDDIM podcast and on YouTube at what difference does it make podcast. So please check us out and thank you in advance. Thank you, Holly Cantos. Thank you, Pantheon Podcast, because we are a proud member of their podcast family. Uh, have I forgotten anything else, Holly Cantos? Uh, thank you, Dave. Thank you very much for continuing our partnership and our friendship for all these years. Okay. I'm forever grateful. Well, we are invincible. Okay, let's wrap this up. Love is a battle. Let's do that. All right, until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly Cantos. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.